Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with authors and scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is uh, Zia Miral. He's a senior resident fellow at the British Army's Center for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research, and author of a new book, uh, How Violence Shapes Religion, Belief and Conflict in the Middle East and Africa, which was just published by Cambridge. Uh, Zia, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about uh, the book. Uh, what were you trying to accomplish with the book, and what do you think the main contributions of your research are? I think ultimately it's driven by a really straightforward agenda. I really wanted to demystify the conversation on religion and violence, and also start pointing out the questions and lines of inquiry that public, particularly public, have not really been exposed to. I mean, often, particularly since 9-11, terror attacks, whenever this topic of religion and violence emerge in the public space, it has always been through a prism of whether religion leads to violence. Um, that question, which has validity to a certain extent. Um, but I also wanted to highlight another direction of this discussion, which we really haven't explored much, which is how violence leads to religion and how violence alters religions and impacts them. And why is it that religions are so present in violent conflicts that they don't necessarily trigger themselves or maintain? So when you began looking at this, it do you find or do you go in expecting to find that religion is in some way different from other types of identities? That there's something special about religion? Depends. I mean, there's definitely, um, particularly if we're talking about a conflict, for example, you could say every form of human conflict and every violent conflict um, and every form of kind of role levels of politics globally have particular themes and trends that are mm -hmm. cross-party similar everywhere, whether the separation of friend versus enemy, in versus out identities, the legitimation that you need for a violent episode and etc. But I do also believe that religion brings a different characteristic to some of these issues, that it's able to move beyond particular localities and ethnic boundaries, it's mm -hmm. able to appeal to a much wider audience, and therefore it's able to mobilize, um, garner support, raise funds, and include people, and mm -hmm. therefore cause contagion in other um, theaters that are not really related to the original epicenter of that conflict, then other types of conflict don't necessarily have. So I think mm -hmm. religions, um, by virtue of their transcendental appeal and transnational networks, are able to um, last, survive, and appeal a lot longer um, as shared identities mm -hmm. and shared regions of the world um, than maybe any other um, formulation of a belief system or an ethnic identity. That's interesting. One of the things which emerges from the book, and we'll talk about this in, in a moment, is how local many of the conflicts that you study actually are that you have these broad transnational religious ideologies or sets of ideas, but you also have these very local triggers. In, indeed, and in fact, that's one of the key points that I make in the book, that when we discuss the topic of religion and violence, we often erase localities, and we often have a tendency to read a global um, picture, and, and so therefore pull up lessons from particular cases. The problem is, of course, a lot of these local conflicts, whether it is insurgencies, or conflicts between two ethno-religious communities, or even some of the terrorist networks that we study, are quite local in their mm -hmm. um, emergence, in their evolving, in their appeal. Um, but when we start reading it from a global perspective, we often miss those nuances. But what I also discovered is that um, we kind of also trigger a double hermeneutic 
um, in, to borrow from Anthony Giddens's language, in a sense that by promoting these very globalized narratives about us versus them and Islam versus Christianity or religion versus none, um, local actors themselves start actually adopting into that vocabularies and terminologies. Mm -hmm. For example, in my research in Nigeria, I've always been amazed at how even in the plateau state where most of the conflict is triggered by local elections and the tensions between indigents versus settlers and access to local funds and governance, the way that it was communicated to me, to outsiders, but even among themselves, often expressed itself from this global manicure language of um, a conflict between Islam and Christianity, and this is the front lines. So therefore, the world, the West, should be with us. And this what is actually a very local mm -hmm. question of governance and access to funds. Um, so we, I think, created a global ecosystem, if you like, where um, local conflicts are picked up um, in conversations or interpretations or discussions over issues around religion and violence and therefore they lose their local um, roots and nuances and it and ends up coming back to localities with the same mm -hmm. um, mannequin kind of reading of the world so therefore we are actually feeling some of these local conflicts by giving them such a cosmic grounding and and when you say that do, do you mean that uh, about particular religions or about all religions is this just about Islam is this about a generic feature of kind of late capitalist religion I mean what what exactly do you mean by these kinds of transcendent narratives in in this current era for example in the case of Nigeria you can see that in Islam uh, Islamic communities and Muslim communities as well as Christian ones in fact, the example that I was just giving about the Plato state, it was the Christian communities mm -hmm. um, saying that they are standing in the front lines of Christianity, so the, the West actually should be with them. So I think, particularly since 1990, I mean, you could stand back from it and across the 20th century, you could see a trajectory how <clears throat> in 70s with the revolutionary language and the same language and, and appeals have adopted themselves and triggered um, uprisings and tensions in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And since 1990s, we have seen translational um, militant networks emerging with um, images of some sort of international solidarities and brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, a lot of it seems to be a new kind of global iron curtain, um, a mannequin vision of the world, us versus them, that demonstrates itself in different localities. But ultimately, this is a global fight. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why in my book, I actually wanted to tease out the narrative of this clash between Islam and Christianity um, that we see being evoked actually continually that there's mm -hmm. the Islamic world on one hand and then there's the Christian world i.e. you know um, Europe and North America and two shall never meet and there's always this contention um, so so what I the way that I see that is this is really not about a particular religion as such and I think all religions ultimately reflect the context that they are in because religions really don't exist we do as human beings mm -hmm. so that's why it's always negotiated and mediated and they always reflect the milieu that they are in so so you can see how a Christian in Africa and a Christian in the United States um, could find a common um, imagined cause that they can share towards developments in Darfur. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, in Nigeria during the civil war, there was the discussion of whether this was a genocide against Christians. And we have seen, particularly in Europe, how um, suffering of Christians in, throughout the Syrian civil war has been framed as a genocide against Christians, even though perhaps other communities could have, um, Yezidis, for example, have mm -hmm. faced an intentional attack, but Christians have not necessarily been intentionally targeted, but it was a very appealing narrative to garner support and attention. Now, the the two major cases in your book um, deal with Islam and, 
and Christianity, Muslims and Christians in Nigeria and in Egypt. Would you expect the same types of things to apply in a case of intra-religious sectarianism, like Sunni and Shia in Iraq or, or that sort of thing? Exactly. I mean, obviously, I had to pick up one or two cases to be able to delve deeper into this discussion. And the reason why I really picked up on Egypt and Nigeria was in one of them, we see a question of a minority being subject to violence and attacks at different contexts throughout um, Egypt's history. And then the other one is ethno-religious, two different ethno-religious mm -hmm. um, um, groups or communities that actually clash with each other. So the, the generic form of a majority versus a minority and versus two ethno-religious communities or three clashing actually could be translated not only to a wider um, network of samples in Africa and Middle East, but even in South Asia and Southeast mm -hmm. Asia as well too. So in fact, such a study will only enrich it. But my theoretical reflections drawing from these two limited but very rich cases would ap should apply um, to wider um, questions of um, how do we decode the interruption of religion and violence in today's conflicts, both at the mm -hmm. local level, but how do they um, get impacted by international and global trends, and, and how do they impact those? I think those will apply across the world. So, generically speaking, how does violence impact religion? Does it make it more intolerant? Does it make it more extreme? Does it raise opportunities for cross-faith peacemaking? I mean, what, what are the major types of things that you saw as you began looking at that, you know, reverse arrow um, of I, the impact of violence on religion? I do appreciate the language of the ambivalence of the sacred as a way of starting this conversation. So that, therefore, I don't necessarily see religions um, categorically promoting peace or categorically promoting violence mm -hmm. um, because of its um, place in human experience as a mechanism to provide meaning to a world that is in chaos um, and to provide an order in personal understanding of that cosmos and also as a community. Um, it's no surprise to me that you see religion to be very visible um, all across violence. And I think violence demands answers. Mm -hmm. So even though Homo sapiens have a very violent history as species and the rule of law and organized forms of violence in a particular country contains it and controls it as an ever-present potential that we see everywhere. In fact, this morning when I woke up to the news, there were reports of shootings in a bank and then there was another um, incident. So there are universal realities that Homo sapiens mm -hmm. um, have, have, have a violent potential in them. But I think use of violence still demands answers. So when there is a conflict that you're experiencing, um, it raises the question of theodicy, which is ultimately a theological question. If there is a God and there are rights and wrongs and he's in control or there's destiny, uh, what is it that I'm witnessing? Um, how do I make sense of this conflict? Um, and, and what is my relation to it as an individual, as a community? Do I accept? Do I flee? Do I respond? And if I am to use violence, how do I use violence? Um, what are my parameters around it? Mm -hmm. um, what are the rules of engagement, if you like? And where do I stop? And after that, how do I um, process that violence? How do I cope with the legacy of that violence? Memorialize the loss of a battle or the victory that we endured or the narrative that makes us as a community? And all of these things require a religious answer granted to it. Um, that's why I think the first and foremost, the question isn't a theology of jihad, which is right. under certain circumstances, a Muslim can use violence within this parameters, but it's actually a question of theodicy. In other words, um, the world as mm -hmm. it is doesn't make sense and we have to respond to it. So by putting religion into that context, Violence ultimately, first and foremost, um, leads theological entrepreneurship, theological reasoning as to uh, explaining what is what, what is it that we are witnessing, 
providing with a, a basis to give a response to it, i.e. now you can use violence, no, now you need to flee or you need to engage. And often, thirdly, creating a spiritual state of emergency, mm -hmm. um, using theological framework to suspend theological grounds and boundaries. So in fact, in for example, again in Nigeria and even other um, in, in places in the Middle East, even in Lebanon during the civil war, for example, you've seen a Christian militia could be extremely brutal and you could challenge them theologically to say, well, should you really as a Christian and you look at the teachings of Christ, there's a clear sense of the uh, narratives of revenge and violence are not necessarily um, uh, reconcilable with mm -hmm. the tradition mm -hmm. that you come from. But these are extraordinary times because rule of law and, and, right. and suspended. And in that process, I think theological interpretations are altered the orientation of that theology is altered and that spiritual state of emergency ultimately um, creates a religion that is different than um, a religion that could be same in other contexts. You also see this in peaceful contexts too. I mean, you can understand why liberation theology emerged in Latin America um, that have accommodated a socialist or Marxist mm -hmm. vision of class struggle, revolution, reordering of economy versus in North America where Christianity have produced mm -hmm. much more personalized religion that is about um, keeping a public morality but ultimately about the well-being of your life, a good mm -hmm. citizen and etc. So I think and you start realizing how violence forces theology, alters it and shapes it and in the end you often, if you're not in a context, co-religionists would often struggle to understand how is it that you reach that conclusion. Um, well, but one thing which emerges from the book, and I think uh, would make sense to political scientists, is that there's the intermediary there, the uh, the, the entrepreneurs. You, you 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 talk about Charles Tilley and his yeah. work on the role of people in like framing it so yeah. it's not just happening on its own yeah. where violence is necessarily recasting theology but you have people who are who are agents who are trying to create those frames and trying to turn it into a, a motive for action um, so that, that's that's one of the things that I took away from uh, from your case studies and from your analysis. Indeed, I mean, again, as I hinted earlier on, religion is religions really don't exist. It always um, exists in this network of human mm -hmm. relations, and um, whether you can understand political entrepreneurs um, as either clergy themselves or other political actors or interest groups, um, or the theological elite who provide a meaning and an interpretation and a response to it. Mm -hmm. But they always do so within a context, and they definitely um, play a key role in creating change, mobilizing masses, and often in authoritarian states, um, mosques or the churches are often the social arenas that are left where the state doesn't necessarily, can't necessarily stop, where large numbers of people can gather and the clergy and individuals associated with that religion, mm -hmm. traditionally and non-traditionally, could play really heightened um, social roles. Um, so definitely, um, I think um, if you accept the fact that most of these violent episodes are not created by religions mm -hmm. as such, they don't come out of theological debates, they are driven by very temporal reasons that require some sort of transcendental narrative around it, you would always have uh, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, whether it is cler clerical, um, clergy, or whether it is political actors, that will appeal to sensitivities, provide a justification, um, and provide continual um, support mm -hmm. to um, pursue that violence. Now, you mentioned early on in, in your comparison between Egypt and Nigeria, 
the difference between kind of two like roughly even uh, communities versus a very clear majority versus a minority. And it seems to me these are very different types of violence. Uh, so the attacks on, on Coptic Christians, uh, where you have kind of a state which is identified with uh, with the Muslim majority, and you have these episodic pogroms. Um, that sounds like one type of violence, which would shape communities in a very particular way, but quite different from the sort of unleashing of large scale civil war type dynamics that you that you see in Nigeria. Indeed, and that's why I evoke the work of Rene Girard actually when it comes to particularly that context where we have a scapegoat, if you like, a vulnerable minority that doesn't really pose any actual physical threat to anybody that attacks it. It's put into that vulnerability by its politics. I mean, we can trace how Mubarak, how um, Sadat, and, and, and now even our President Sisi have handled Copts um, as a utility in communicating to the world and why they are um, good at protecting Christian minority while at the same time actually being the very power that puts them into that vulnerable position. And why is it in such liminal contexts such as elections or a, polit or a military coup, um, attacks against them emerge? So um, that scapegoating mechanism whereby um, a religious minority often um, is being um, um, accused to be the cause of the suffering or um, between a fight between an, an opposition group and an authoritarian group, an innocent victim that could often be attacked with impunity, um, and actually is a pattern that we have seen. You could even um, evoke the um, work of George Agamben and the vision of a mm -hmm. homosacar, that actually the idea of a sacred man who can be killed in impunity but cannot be sacrificed to gods, um, played a role in the society, um, as you like, mm -hmm. the, the individual or the community. That could be blamed. And you could say what we have seen across European history on anti-Semitism, um, where the Jewish communities were blamed because of their religious distinctness um, and their life patterns as the cause of plagues or economic downturns or political mm -hmm. instability, is a pattern that keeps emerging. And to the, in today's terms, maybe migrants and asylum seekers. But I think by bringing Egypt and um, Nigeria together, both of them are the most populous countries of Middle East and Africa, um, and, mm -hmm. and both of them have a wider geopolitical impact in shaping um, uh, mm -hmm. the tone of the conversation and developments in the immediate region. But also both of them are often seen as, if you like, the front line of this imagined um, war um, between Islam and Christianity, between Islamism mm -hmm. and the rest of the civilized world. Um, that's why I think demonstrating the fact that um, what happens to Copts is a very different dynamic than what happens in places like Nigeria, where you have ethno-religious communities fighting with each mm -hmm. other, um, still actually reveals a lot of theoretical insights that similar patterns vis-a-vis -vis profile of those who attack them, um, how they are attacked, um, mm -hmm. and how um, those calls are made, and why. I mean, what's interesting also is when that becomes translated into law or into constitution. So after the transition, after mm -hmm. the, the fall of Mubarak, um, the idea of uh, that there's going to be a change in the whether Sharia was going to be a source of law and the change in the Article 2, this was a hugely important symbolic issue um, for not just for, for Copts, but for many Muslim Egyptians as well. And you go over to Nigeria and you also see, you know, the, the rise of the Sharia courts and this, uh, the whole controversies over Sharia law. And so in a sense, that take both of those take it out of the communal level yeah. and into the state and into this kind of core definition of national and state identity as opposed to simply intercommunal or personal. Definitely. And I think if you trace it historically with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, nobody was necessarily looking at 
bringing back Sharia as such. In fact, with the Ottoman Tanzimat reforms in onwards, you have seen a different trend, mm -hmm. modernizing rule of law and, and actually breaking away from Sharia laws. And the conversations on bringing Sharia laws really, again, emerges back again in 1970s, not just in Egypt, but also in Nigeria, as well as in Pakistan and all across, mm -hmm. actually, uh, Muslim-majority countries. And that's a very interesting point. Why is it that in 1970s, particularly after Six Days War, when we have seen that kind of secular, nationalistic, socialistic region collapsing, calls for Sharia have emerged in the face of corruption and brutal regimes as pretty much a longing to establish a moral order again, a purity of the system. Mm -hmm. um, but even they have been quite cunning in how they approach this. So by hijacking the agenda or the call for a much fairer system, um, i.e. call for Sharia laws for most people have always meant that um, for those who are in, in poor conditions, for those who face injustice and for those who see the corruption and immorality, um, by hijacking that agenda and playing the politics of Islamization, um, Sadat and others, and Numeri in Sudan as well too, have played that game of um, providing Sharia law, so therefore being protector of a new moral system, therefore bringing it back to constitution. Mm -hmm. So when Egyptian constitution changed in the 1980s into um, that actually accommodated Islam being a source of legislation, became the source of legislation, um, in practical terms that only showed itself in civil law. In, in questions of personal status courts, whether it is inheritance and marriage, and it didn't really encompass the penal course. It was always a symbolic um, bringing back of Sharia law to be able to um, mm -hmm. um, appease the growing demand. And Bangladesh had a similar journey whereby it introduced Sharia laws, but it also provided a clause in its constitution that says, but it's not applicable, it's not enforceable judicially. So there has always been this mm -hmm. demand from the grassroots level for a fairer, System. So that's why religion was very present in calls for actually good governance and those who really realize they can't really grant that but what they can actually play is um, with the sense of re-establishing the morality of the rule um, have actually been the ones bringing Sharia laws themselves. So in Nigeria today, in northern Nigeria, um, you, you see Sharia laws being used and, and ad hoc in some really complex ways, even contradicting with the Nigerian federal law at times. And again, in the Egyptian case, um, and, and for Copts, for most of the various, even though they have their own canon law, they still have their own Coptic um, freedom to handle, uh, owing to the Ottoman millet system mm -hmm. and its mm -hmm. legacy, personal status matters. And their concern has always been um, what um, uh, making Islam as the um, source of legislation if it goes murder right. further under Morsi versus now. Um, but I think that game of hijacking the agenda of the public by requesting more Islam in the public space um, has been played in 70s, 80s to really disastrous outcomes, I think, to this day. So one of the interesting things that you talk about in terms of the effects of violence, you talk about social trust and the ways that that religion plays different roles in terms of either strengthening or undermining social trust. And it seems that those go in opposite directions. So you might have violence that widens the distance between religious communities, but actually be a source of a very important source of solidarity within that community. So in other words, violence can be both destructive and useful at the same time. In fact, it can consolidate because the moment there's an enemy, um, and a threat to us, us becomes a much more closer-knit community. So mm -hmm. you could even see it in the writings of Carl Schmitt when he spoke about the um, friend and enemy separation and the idea of the political. And that's why I think political anthropology is really helpful in seeing that pattern that if there's a threat 
and there's an the other in the conversation that is very distinctly different the communities do mm. come together and much more closely and religion definitely is the most powerful way of um providing that identity boundary because if your god is different than mine there is an eternal difference between us even though um, our dna our physical features are not really necessarily different even though if there was a dna test it would reveal there isn't much difference than us but by providing that religious marker what we are providing is an eternal difference between you and me and our god and your god and and the story that you belong and the story that we belong so therefore that's why religion is often or religious language is often the most effective way of creating that in and out boundary um so that's why religious actors could be guilty of um, deepening those rifts mm -hmm. um, and in, we've seen that in the case of Serbia we've seen that even in Rwandan case and during the um, the genocide there were nuns and priests who were found guilty by the Hague for actually partaking in the genocide mm -hmm. and not necessarily just preaching about it so religion could provide that very cosmic language we need to dehumanize the other good and evil and Dick Cheney famously when he was speaking about the Guantanamo Bay famously I said well those people these people are evil even if they haven't committed, committed any crimes yet one day they will um, so that very theological framing of the other mm -hmm. is something religions do but again as you hinted there can also be the very dynamism to undo that in truth and reconciliation commissions in so many peace initiatives that I've seen in Middle East today and in Africa as well too, religious actors are really present in preaching a completely different message of forgiveness or reconciliation or seeing the image of God in the other as you see it in yourself. So that's why I think the language of the ambivalence of the sacred mm -hmm. is really helpful because religion is clearly a very powerful reality. Um, it has always been, so I don't think we're facing a revenge of God. Um, or um, as the books suggest, I don't think God has ever died. I think it, this political and social significance of religions come and go, mm -hmm. depending upon developments, but their the hold on um, human beings as an effective way of understanding the world and responding to it as an individual and a community still remains. Okay, this has been a really interesting conversation. I want to thank uh, you for joining us. We've been speaking with uh, Zia Meral, uh, author of the new book, uh, How Violence Shapes Religion. So thanks for joining us. No, thank you.